Well, let us go ahead and begin this morning. If you would open your Bibles to Ephesians, the 5th chapter and the 21st verse. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. We've been studying the divine institutions, and it's fascinating to, when, when you see the way the Lord laid things out and what He divinely installed as the way things should be done, then it's real easy to start looking at the way, what the world attacks and what they go after. What are the, what is the, the big picture behind the satanic attack that we find on this world and one of which is volition they want you to believe that you're a product of your environment that the environment determines who you are they want you to believe therefore that you're not responsible for any of your decisions and if you're not responsible for any of your decisions then you really don't have any sin in your life because it's everybody else's fault and if you don't have any sin in your life why do you need a messiah so that's one of the things they go after. The second one is marriage. That is the second thing that the Lord established as an institution between one man, one woman, and I know that's considered hate speech today and in today's society, and yet uh, we're going with what the Bible has to say. People say, what hill will you die on? We better be willing to die on the hill of what the Scripture has to say. And So that's what it says. I'm going to follow that book rather than any of the books of man. Then we have the family. That's a natural outgrowth of marriage, so they're attacking the family. And if you read the um, uh, playbook, uh, The 45 Things, written by Cleon Skusen in 1963, that uh, the communists said, do this and you're going to take over the United States and bring it down. One of the things that they want to do is destroy the family unit. Uh, destroy the whole institution of marriage and then from that destroy the family unit and the fourth divine institution is the nation they don't really want any borders around the nations because they want to control the whole thing and if there's borders they have problems controlling the whole thing so they're going after all four of those things you can see it on a global front you can see those that we would call them communist or secular humanists that's the religion behind what is going on communism is more the form of government the totalitarian form of government but secular humanism is behind it that says man is the highest being that there is and we just evolved into existence and and uh, that's part of their argument they don't believe there is a god they are atheistic uh, to begin with and it is it is a recognized religion by the way known as secular humanism so they want to do away with all the things that God established and in doing that they're going to go after the Bible try to disrupt marriages which they've done a, a good job of they are going to go after the family unit that was a stated policy in fact in black lives matter until they got called out on it and then managed to take it off their website and then the national uh, end of it is kind of hard to imagine you know you're going to have they, they want you now to have a uh, quarantine to go from one state to another or to fly into one state like Florida and um, uh, yet they're they're just letting people cross the border on the southern part of the United States there's a real problem in that thinking that they some say they don't realize I think they do realize it and they do realize the hypocrisy how would you miss it yet that is their approach and they want to destroy 
all of the divine institutions to install a totalitarian government and that government then would become God. God would, would as the government, would be that which provided for uh, all of your uh, necessities, uh, the necessities of life. Now, <clears throat> the divine institutions, we are now at the second one. We're looking at marriage. We just looked at the establishment of the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2 when uh, God mashed the man together breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives and then he took a rib from the man and he built a woman to complement and to complete him and they had one command then uh, they had one command that preceded actually don't eat from that tree and that command was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so I really don't think that uh, they were in the garden very long before they fall before they fell I know people that say, well, they could have been in the garden a thousand years. We just don't know. I don't think so, or there'd have been a bunch of little Adams and Eves running around somewhere without any sin natures. That would have posed a whole different set of theological issues. I don't think they were very there, there very long. The devil went after them to begin with, and I think he was probably successful uh, quickly in doing that. Now we are in Ephesians, in the fifth chapter, and we are looking at what one of the major passages of the relationship designed by God for the husband and the wife. Now before we begin, as with any portion of Scripture, we need to go before the throne of grace. We need to prepare ourselves spiritually, uh, put away all the uh, different issues of the world, uh, I know it's supposed to snow tomorrow. That's why we're meeting on Shabbat on the Sabbath instead of meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week. So I know we're doing things a little bit different. But this, this, will, be, this will be fine. But we still need to prepare. We still need to get ourselves ready to listen to what God's Word has to say. Let us pray. Father, again, we're amazingly blessed, we're privileged, honored to be able to come together, be able to open up your word, to be able to see what you've got to say to us. And Father, we are in a nation that is turning its back on you, and yet, Father, you brought this pressure along, which we are thankful for, because it's designed to turn, uh, turn your family back to you because many have gone astray so father we pray as we open up your word today that the things we know to be true because you said it those things will be reinforced in our souls that we might be your witnesses for we ask it in jesus name amen well we're in the book of ephesians now you can't hardly go into another book without getting some kind of context first we find from chapter 4 the first three verses of this we find that that part of what we are to do is to have the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace so if you look at the outline in chapter 4 through 6 of the book of Ephesians what you find are practical applications 
of the theology he established in the first three chapters. It's frequently the way Paul did it. He spends time laying out the theology, then he gives you the practicality of it. Uh, Romans, he spent 11 chapters on the theology, and then tw chapter 12 through 16 is the practical application of that theology into our everyday lives. And so in chapter 4, we find the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We find um, peace within the church, the first 16 verses. We find peace of soul. That's what he wants us to have as a result of that. We find uh, importance of peace with your neighbor later on in chapter 4. We find peace with God. Be an imitator of God. Ephesians 5.1. That's a tall order. Whenever you think you've arrived, just look at passages like that. Matthew 5.48. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you think, I've got a long way to go. So we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And then peace in our lifestyle. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. A great verse in there. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Uh, some people say, well, should I say anything or not? Well, there's been a lot of deeds of darkness not exposed, and that's part of why we're in the trouble that we are in. And then we find peace in worship. And in verse 15, we'll be reminded quickly, because there's going to be six characteristics given of a wise walk. 5.15 says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So we're having six characteristics of a wise walk. The first one's redeem the time. Spend your time on something worthwhile spiritually. To build yourself up, to build others up, to spread the word. Uh, redeeming the time. Understand the Lord's will. And that's verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 5. We want to understand what his will is for our lives. What he prescribes, we especially want to know. Because if he's prescribed it, that is good and beneficial and healthy for our soul. And then being filled by the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation or drunkenness. Instead, be filled by the Holy Spirit. Now that's so important because that's a process and it's a matter of being filled up to all the goodness and love of God that's stated earlier in Ephesians chapter 3 at the end of the theological section. Being filled up by the Holy Spirit and then worship, singing, making melodies, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That's the fourth element of a wise walk. And the fifth one is thanksgiving. Now, see, it's interesting. We look at it and go, well, Paul didn't know the times in which we live. Uh, seems like he wrote, redeeming the time for the days are evil. Well, the days were evil in the first century, around 62 A.D., when Paul wrote this from a prison. They were evil. And he's saying, this is what you got to do. Redeem the time. Know what God's will is. Be filled up by the Holy Spirit, which is a filling of, of love. Worship God. Remember Acts chapter 16? He's in prison with Silas, thrown in prison unjustly. And what's he doing? He's crying in the corner, isn't he? He's all curled up in a fetal position. He is scared to death for being in that prison. No, that's not what had happened, is it? 
Instead, he's teaching and leading the prisoners in worship, in praise and worship. He saw it as an opportunity to talk to a bunch of people that couldn't get away from him. So he started, started talking to them, and the next thing you know, they're singing praises to the Lord. And then the doors of the prison open. You remember that one? From, from an earthquake. And the jailer is scared to death because under Roman law, you lose a prisoner, you die. That's what happens. And he was scared to death. And he comes running in there. And Paul said, oh, calm down. We're all here. We're all here. Nobody left. And they could have left. And then he said, what must I do to be saved? And there you get one of the clearest renderings of the gospel anywhere. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Now that wasn't in a vacuum because he'd been singing praises and hymns to the Lord all along. So somewhere along the line, he knew who, who, Paul, he knew who Paul was talking about. He says, you and all your household. And guess what happened to the Roman jailer? He got saved. The Macedonian jailer. Thanksgiving. Offer up Thanksgiving in the middle of all this chaos and mess. Now the sixth characteristic of the wise walk is mutual submission. It's a mutual submission to one another and it's stated as a principle. And it's interesting because what follows, it establishes the context for what follows. Because the verses that follow are going to be about wives and husbands and their role within the marriage union. And so the mutual submission by context starts in the home. That's where it's designed to start. It says, and be subject, it's literally a participle that follows. So it says, being subject, it's upatasso, we went through this last week, uh, Subjecting ourselves to proper authorities is, one of, is a major topic of the scripture. It's not, it doesn't say and being subject. There's no and in there, even though the English translations add one. There's no chi, there's no connector word in there. But, and it is not an imperative that as they translate it, and be subject. There's no and and there's no imperative. So it says being subject to one another. And it flows from this, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise men, redeeming the time, understanding. See all those participles being filled by means of the Holy Spirit? Uh, that's a whole series of participles that go back with redeeming the time. So <clears throat> he says to one another, a lay loan is one another of the same kind. And it normally refers to other believers that he's talking about, but it does not exclude unbelievers at all, because we are uh, one of the, uh, of the same kind. We're human beings made in the image of God. James 3 points that out. He says to one another in the fear, the phobos, the concentration of Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, okay, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, submitting yourselves to others to help fill their needs is an integral part of the Christian life. That's part of what we're called to do. Philippians chapter 2. And I would ask the question, how can a person be Christ-like and not be willing to fulfill this principle? People in 
Christianity, because we all have sin natures, some are just all wrapped up in old number one. But this is about submitting to one another. Tasso is to arrange. Hupo means under the authority or under the needs of someone else. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, I love this passage. It's a first class condition because it says, and there is. If there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there's any consolation of love, another first class, and there is. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If any affection and compassion, and there is. Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also for the interest of other people. If we were to read through and keep reading in Philippians 2, the next one is, Have this attitude in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who... who <clears throat> emptied himself he took on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men here is an amazing passage telling us to be like Jesus Christ and one of the things about Jesus Christ is he did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit nothing now that's one of the standards not often given out there for becoming Christ like Christ himself lived the wisest walk and we're commanded to imitate him. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, I love Paul. He says, be an imitator of Christ. Or be an imitator of me. Huh? Then he says, just as I am of Christ. In other words, know the will of God. Know who the Messiah is. Know how he lived and imitate him. And Paul said, I want to be an example for you. But I have feet of clay. I make mistakes. Uh, Romans 7 is a prime example of that. Paul makes mistakes and he says, you need to know the difference because I'm just a man, I, I, I err, I make mistakes. But the what I follow in Christ, that's what you want to do and that's what you want to imitate. The verse introduces teachings on what is designed to be the closest human relationships in our lives. So the issue here is not who's the boss. I've done a lot of counseling over the years, and I, uh, sad to say, oftentimes have the man and the woman sitting there, and the man says, well, I just want to know who's the boss in this family. And I, my response, as gently as I can make it, is that's not the issue. According to Christ, the issue is who's the servant, not who's the boss. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. Now, who did he give authority to? It's important to know. But it also tells us how it's supposed to be used whenever we understand properly this relationship. Submission to one another is part of the will of God. Didn't, didn't we just have that back in, in verse 17? Understanding. So stop becoming foolish, it says, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here it is. He's giving us his will. It's interesting that this submission to one another, I think, is also 
part of properly understanding authority, the authority structure. Because here is a submission to one another because the next three verses he's going to lay out who's the head of the household. He's going to lay that out. But he prefaces it with this. So <clears throat> if we don't recognize this as God's will, we lack wisdom in that area. That's, that's what Paul's trying to teach us. The wise walk is a walk of peace because he's focused on the Lord because it's focused on the Lord himself who is our peace. Remember that passage from Ephesians 2 verse 14 where he's laying out the theology. The real peace is found in Jesus Christ himself. It's not just an absence of hostility as some would have you believe. Communists wrote a kind of a handbook a long time ago and Peace to them was non-resistance to Soviet aggression. Hmm. That's an interesting definition of peace. Now, peace is when there's really no hostility involved. And Jesus is our peace. And we have been reconciled to him. Reconcile means to have, have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, thus the wise walk is displayed in submission to other people. Now, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, it shows this as a break point in your, in your Bibles. Some Bibles don't break paragraphs. Other Bibles do break paragraphs. And it shouldn't really be a break in this paragraph. It's continuing on the same thought. It is typical Jewish writing of giving you the bottom line and explaining it because he's talking about a wise walk that's kind of the guiding verse and then he starts explaining the wise walk and then he gets down to submission to one another then he starts giving examples of submission to one another now <clears throat> peace in the marriage next verses up to verse 33 rest of this rest of this chapter verse 22 to the wives. This is to the women. It's pretty clear he's talking to women here. It's uh, pretty clear too that it's a male-female relationship that he's talking about. These words, the Greek language makes a distinction between masculine and feminine. And it's, it's very clear it adds a neuter in there at times. And so it's very clear how we are to understand life. So when people start throwing aspersions on that, and it, it may seem it come from some scholarly professor at a high-ranking university and all that, that doesn't matter if it violates the Bible. It's just like in our personal life, if it violates the Constitution, a law is null and void and not to be obeyed. Thomas Jefferson, if, however, it violates the word of God even a constitution should not be obeyed because there is a higher authority to appeal to and here it says wives this is the word gune and it has a definite article so it says literally the wives this is probably one of the more unflattering words in all of, of um, vocabulary use and gune is the word for woman means women in general or wives uh, we know that wives are in view because of the context because the 
term your own that is going to follow here. Uh, it's not a major paragraph again, but it's applying verse 21 to the marriage relationship. It's the, the application of it. And then you have be subject is in italics. It should be. I don't know if it is on the handout. I think I missed that one. But being subject should be in italics because the verb is not actually in this verse, but the verb is supplied from verse 21. See, which is the, the verse about being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Tupotasso is the verb that is in view here, and it's called an elision. It's a common it's common in all languages because you've already stated something you don't have to restate it again so here is being subject it is implied the wives being subject carrying on the thought of the present participle about submitting yourselves to one another uh, which by the way submitting yourselves to one another should be an outgrowth of what the filling of the Holy Spirit that he just talked about in verse 18. So <clears throat> he says, to your own, and this is the word idios, I-D-I-O-S, uh, the pronoun is exclusive because the wives, it, it only refers to the, that husband of that wife. It does not refer to men in general, as some have taught this. The word idios in this pronoun makes it very clear. It's just talking about your own husband. Onir is the word used here, which is a word for a nobleman, much akin to Ish, the Hebrew word Ish we saw in Genesis 2. As to the Lord. As is hos, H-O-S, and it means in a manner similar to. Now the word kathos would mean exactly as. There's a difference there, but hos by itself means in a similar manner to the Lord. So the wives being subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So after exhorting all believers to submit to one another, the wives are specifically addressed. Okay, Verse 21 is husbands, arrange yourself around your wife. Wife, arrange yourself around your husband. Now he addresses the wife to begin with. Wives have been given the mission to be like the church is designed to be to the Lord. Now should the church be submitted to the Lord? We are the bride of Christ and with that comes a submission. So wives are to model that. They're to model that. The principle of submission to one another is for the universal church. Submitting yourselves to one another. So this concept is not exclusive to wives only. Some would say some be subject to one another, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. And then they see verse 22 and they say, well, that's just for wives. No, one another goes both directions. It's what it does. Love one another goes both directions. Honor one another goes both directions. All of the one another issues go both directions. Now, it's clear that God's directive will is that a woman should not dominate or control her husband. It's very clear. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands. Word we just heard. As is fitting in the Lord. As is appropriate in the Lord. 
Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your chain in child, pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. It, it, I'm not exegeting that, but the whole exegesis of that verse basically says that she will want to dominate her husband, but she'll hate it if she does. Okay? It's just a function of the sin nature, because with the fall of Adam and Eve came a sin nature that brings chaos along with it. Now, this statement is made to Ephesus because there was a strong women's liberation movement going on in Christianity. For the first time in history, women and men, women sat with men in the services. It was different. They were equal in Christ. See, something different has happened here. The synagogues, they were divided. And even today in a lot of, of countries, the men sit on one side of the auditorium, women sit on the other side of the auditorium, and that's the way they do it. But in the first century, in Paul's churches, they started sitting together. Now that was different. So what it did was the women took equality and turned it into superiority. Part of the problem uh, in 1 Corinthians 11 is with the issue of hats. Should women wear hats today in church? Well, if you go down through there and read the commands, it certainly sounds like maybe they should wear hats in church, and men should never wear a hat in a church. Is that contextual based on the society in which they live? Or is it universal to go through the whole church? I believe it's contextual based on the society in which they live. Because what was happening is that it, it had been much like what happened in the 60s and 70s with the burn your bra movement with the women. Okay, it was a distraction. And so if Paul was around in the 20th century, he said, ladies, put your bras back on. Don't come to church without them. It's a distraction. It's things that not, are not needed. And so what he said was, women, don't pray with your head uncovered because it's too big of an issue. Men, take that thing off your head. It's different. Act like men is what he's saying. Grow up and don't try to flaunt your liberty at the expense of other people. That's where the real principle is found. This statement is included because submission is one of the most difficult things for anyone to do. It doesn't make any difference if it's a man or a woman. Submission to other people. We, we start that with our sin nature when we're kids. Rebelling against authority. Submitting on mom and dad. Now who's the boss in the family? Okay, you have a Christian family. And the answer is, well, dad's the boss. And some mothers say... We just want him to think he's a boss, but I really run the show. You know, and our daughter one time said, let me get this right. Now, Dad is your boss, right? Speaking to Mom, and you are my boss, right? And I am the boss of the dog. Because they had to have a pecking order, see? <laughs> it had to be, okay, and it's good to figure out where do I fit? What is my role? What is my, my benefit of being a part of this society, this little society that we've got, got going? But submitting is one of the most difficult things for anyone to do. 
You tell a kid, stay on this side of the fence, and what do they do? They go right to the edge of the fence. They want to know what their borders are, and it's still hard to submit. You know, I used to sit on top of the fence when I was a kid, you know, with my BB gun shooting at birds. I mean, I couldn't go on the other side of the fence, but I could sit on top of the fence. Just don't fall off and get caught. Now, when the spiritual principle is violated, the inevitable result is increased unhappiness and insecurity. People sometimes get an excitement, especially the first time they do it. They do something they knew they shouldn't do, and they don't get caught. One of the best things that could happen is get caught the first time. But we don't know that uh, as, a, as a child. When the spiritual principle is violated, the inevitable results increased unhappiness and insecurity. Because violating God's commands, that's what it brings. That's what it brings. We may not understand them. One day we will, but they are there for our benefit. If we get away with it, it might bring a temporary gratification. But as uh, a lot of police officers will tell you, when they're dealing with crooks, they get more and more bold and brazen. They get more and more arrogant, thinking nobody's ever going to catch them. So they just keep on seeing how far they can go before they get caught. And when this principle is applied as an outgrowth of being filled by the Holy Spirit, significant ministry will occur to her husband. When a wife listens to this and fulfills this, even if her husband is unruly, 1 Peter chapter 3, first six verses are addressed to the ladies. We'll eventually get there. But they're, they're addressed to the ladies there, and it's how to win your husband without a word. It ministers. It shows respect. It, it, it teaches them in ways that we can't really grab or understand. A submissive wife will also minister in a significant way to her children. Read Proverbs 31. The Proverbs 31 lady. There's a uh, book out. I th think it's Liz Taylor Higgs. I can't remember the author for sure. It's called The Proverbs 31 Lady and Other Impossible Dreams. <laughs> it's, it's fun. A lot of fun for it to read through because humorously it teaches the principles of Proverbs chapter 31. And a uh, submissive wife will minister to her husband, to her children, in a significant way. That's what the Word tells us. Sometimes people just don't want to exhibit the faith to do what God says is the right thing to do. And as a result, there's turmoil that goes on in the soul. This principle is not designed to be easy to apply. How many perfect husbands have ever existed in the course of history? Adam for a short period of time and then God and outside of that that's it the rest of men in case you haven't noticed are flawed <laughs> we all have flaws sometimes we enjoy our flaws so much that we don't want to give up our flaws but we're supposed to work on our flaws that's what the Christian life is about it's not designed to be easy to apply. When it says, love your neighbors yourself, you're going to have times that is not easy. That's intentional. 
because you don't know if it's true or not until you can love somebody who is unlovable. You don't know. If your life has been transformed to the point of being filled by the Holy Spirit that you can love someone in spite of what they've done. That doesn't mean you condone what they've done. That's what, the, that's what the Satan wants you to think. Well, if I'm going to love someone who keeps messing up, I have to embrace their sinful deed. No, you don't. You can still love them. And I'm glad that's the way the Lord loves us. The principle, the divine arrangement is for the wife to arrange herself to minister to her husband. That's the divine arrangement. Is for the wife to arrange herself to minister to her husband. A soulmate, a helpmate, to complement and to complete him. Now verse 23 says, why? Tells us why. Because it's God's plan. For the husband is the head. The kafale. Now it doesn't necessarily mean he is smarter. But that he is responsible. He is the head of the wife as, it's the word hosts, similarly to, in a similar manner, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the soter, the savior of the body. Now God established this divine design by the order of creation. He showed us what it was in the sequence in which he made things. 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, Paul said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. This was Paul's policy and principle within the early church. Why? In part, because it wasn't because they weren't necessarily smarter than men, but why? It was because that was the design, and he had women forming this women's liberation movement and he needed to stop it where it was. He says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. See, the order of creation. Why didn't he allow it? He said, this is the way God set it up based on the order of creation. And it was not Adam who was deceived. Now his helpmate, his partner, was the one that got deceived. When Adam ate, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was going to choose to pick the woman outside of the garden maybe die and would die eventually or to choose God and stay in the garden there was another option because we always think things are either or he could offer to take her place now what would happen with history then had he been the, the first Adam and the last Adam who would offer to take her place but he didn't she got faked out of her shoes and he she didn't get faked out of her. She got faked into fig leaves is what happened. She got, she's the one that got fooled. But Adam knew exactly what he was doing whenever he ate. But the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. Now, did that exonerate her? No. Unknown sins? Sins committed in ignorance? Is that, uh, is that exonerate us? Well, it may ease some of the discipline off at one point in time if God so chooses to do it, but there was a sin and a trespass offering under the Mosaic Law. One was for sins you knew about, the trespass offering, and the other one was for sins you didn't know about. Something flitted through your head as a mental attitude sin, and you didn't even recognize it when it happened. Well, you don't need to go on 
in that and so that sin offering was designed to say this is for the stuff I didn't know I did so <clears throat> the marriage union is to be a witness to the world of the relationship between Christ and the church now <clears throat> see this passage when we look at it on the surface is about husband and wife this passage is also designed it's just as much about a relationship with Christ as it is between a husband and wife because we are the bride of Christ so what should we do submit ourselves to him what is that consider other more others more important than ourselves what did he do in Philippians 2, 5? He emptied himself, took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. Now that is the example that we have been left. This relationship <coughs> is first of all a growth process. Ephesians 4, 15. Speaking the truth in love, he says, we're to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the kephale, the head, even Christ. This relationship's a growth process. You're not born again and instantaneously love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because you don't know how. You might love him for what he did and you've got a grasp of that, a grasp of, of, of the fact that he took your place on a cross, he redeemed you from your fallen condition, and yes, you've got a joy, but to see the greatness of who he is, that takes some time. See that he's God and man in one. That he was true humanity and total deity at the same time. To try and figure that out. To try and see and maybe even think about how could a perfect individual deal with such imperfection and stay perfect. That's fascinating to think about. In the face of all the evil that was in front of him, betrayal by people close to him, Betrayal even by his family at times, his countrymen. All those things and stay focused on the Father. This is designed to be inseparable, this relationship. It's designed to be a bond of love, not a master-slave relationship. Now it's interesting because even though master-slave terminology is sometimes used. An example of that is found uh, Genesis chapter 17 Sarah called Abraham Lord and she was given credit for that found in Hebrews chapter 11 1 Peter 3 uh, acknowledges that time she was hiding behind the tent remember eavesdropping on the conversation between the Lord the two angels and Abraham about how he would come back this time next year and there would be a son Abraham would have a son and Sarah laughed she said how could my Lord being old have a son okay and she called him that with no pressure no nothing she recognized who well, that that is master slave terminology there were times Abraham was not Lord like because he was full of flaws and imperfection. But what it's designed, to, what this shows us is that Satan has tampered with the meanings of master and slave. Because true 
biblical leadership is servant leadership. That's the way the Lord led. You can track it all the way through the Gospels. How did the Lord leave? He, did, he, he said, don't lord it over those allotted to your charge. Peter quoted that in 1 Peter 5. Don't be like the Gentiles who do that. Instead, serve other people. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. So it is to be a bond of love between Christ and the church, between husband and wife, not a master-slave relationship. This is part of the wise walk, is it not? It's all in the contextual flow of walk as wise people. There's always a tendency to rationalize failures, to submit to others, but we're called to set an example. Now, sometimes there's a time when a husband and wife, they talk about things, they can't agree, and the husband has to make a decision. And that's the way it needs to be. Sometimes, sometimes things cannot be done by committee. The person at the top is the one that has to decide. Believing wives must first remember their first husband is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the greatest commandment requires they love him first. That's the greatest commandment. The second greatest commandment involves loving their husband. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's your closest neighbor? <laughs> it's, your, it's your husband. The biggest test is when, we, when the love is not returned or not perceived as being returned. And see, this is, we can, uh, we can empathize with the Lord's suffering when he was going to a cross to show the greatest love ever in the history of anything and people were disobedient to him they were mocking him they were spitting on him see he often called the Jews harlots read the Old Testament uh, <clears throat> it is a marker of our spiritual growth whether or not we can learn to love unconditionally as the Lord did submission within divinely established areas of authority displays our love for the Lord. So the principle is that God designed the marriage to first recognize the headship of Christ through his design. The marriage needs to do that. It's just like this, this cross here on the front. This cross is designed to show the bond of a marriage relationship. It's called the unity cross. It is uh, quite a, a picture and uh, is used, I've used it at a few weddings, because the, the wood on the inside is a husband-wife relationship, working together with one another. The steel that it is, that is connected to, that steel is a picture of unity in Christ Jesus, and it's a bond that should not be broken. The rock in which it's embedded Laying a foundation on the rock, which is Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful picture of that. That's supposed to be Christ in the church. That's supposed to be us. Built on the rock. Held together by steel. They can't be broken. And yet, here we are as pieces of wood, if you will, interlocking with one another. That's what we're called, called to do. Verse 24 and since we don't have uh, other things to do, I'm going to go a few minutes over today. Uh, but as the church, ecclesia, 
The universal church is subject, hupotasso, once again, is subject to Christ. So also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Ought is in italics. Once again, doesn't actually occur here, but it's implied. So even Jesus, the Messiah, submitted to the authority of his parents while he was growing up. You know, the Lord, when he gives us things, it's not that he's exempt. In other words, he doesn't function like some legislatures where they make laws that they are not subject to. Luke 2.51. This is Jesus. This is him growing up. He went down with them. He came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. The Lord submitted to his mother and dad. Because that was a divine plan. It was a divine design. A mind set on the flesh will not want to conform to this standard. See, we know that. The scripture tells us. Romans 8, verse 6 to 9. For the mind set on the flesh is death or separation. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Similar context to Ephesians, right? Areas of peace within the body. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So to do this properly requires the filling by the Holy Spirit and a growing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.3 talks about the Jews not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. We are called to submit to duly established authorities. And it is not supposed to be easy. Okay? It's going to have its test. But did the Lord do it? Yeah. What did he make a statement about in the temple? He said, I came to do the Father's will. That's why I'm here. See... Christ in his humanity was submitted to his deity. I came to do the Father's will. All creation is under Christ's authority. Uh, we're not going to read those passages, but um, one day, when you read those, one day everything will be subjected to him. Because right now in this fallen condition, in this fallen universe... Yeah, he's still in charge. He hasn't lost control. He's not going to lose this planet in the midst of all the other planets and us be destroyed because he's made too many promises. But one day he's going to subject all things to himself. You know, it's interesting. We're always subjected to something. It's either the Lord or our sin nature or it's the world. The question is what are we subjected to? Why, does he, why is he going to subject it? So he'll set it free. It's going to have to be subjected to his authority to ever be happy. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. So submission of a wife to her husband is clearly prescribed by God's word. And here are the passages that go with that. 
To submit to the Father's desire in this regard is to take hold of that which is life itself. From <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 9. He says, let us be subject to the Father of spirits and live. That's to truly take hold of life itself. To submit ourselves to the established, to, to the first authority being God. And to submit ourselves one to another. Often we try and complicate the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ which is sponsored by the devil. As I mentioned earlier, the world and the devil has laid an onslaught on the divine institutions established by God. And our flesh has just joined in in so many different ways. But <clears throat> I, I love this passage because I study and I study in detail and I try to gather all these details together and the, the Holy Spirit always brings this passage back to mind it says I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ we can learn a whole lot and get distracted but notice what devotion to Christ is. Simple and pure. Simple and pure. It is not immoral. It is not amoral. It's very simple. Am I going to submit to his authority? When he expresses his directive will. Is that the way I want to live my life or not? Often we try to complicate it. Beware of looking for exceptions to the phrase. In everything. <laughs> we often like to do that. When application becomes difficult, it's time to cast all your cares upon Him. Present your body before God as a living sacrifice, asking for His Holy Spirit to go to work in you. And that's Romans 12, first two verses. Present yourself a living sacrifice, acceptable to God. It's your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed. By the renewing of your mind so you can determine what the will of God is. So the church is to arrange itself unto the Lord by doing all things to his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. That's kind of a simple uh, backdrop of simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do all things for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Do that which is pleasing in his eyes. If you read in the next verse, verse 10, because we all have to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, it just makes sense. If you're going to stand in front of judgment, you want to do the things that are pleasing in the eyes of the judge. What is pleasing in his eyes? And arrange itself unto the Lord by applying the principles he establishes. Ephesians chapter 4 through 6 are applications of that great theology of the first three chapters. The church is the mystery, is one of the main ones laid out in chapter 3. That's who we are. How do we live? Because we have a new set of laws because we are under a new priesthood. The point is the church is to model the principles of marriage by its relationship to Jesus, the Messiah. That is what is to be our relationship. Men and women, both, are to submit to Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus, the 
Messiah. We're to model that. And if we do that, then we model it in our marriage. Hopefully that's what will happen. Hopefully our children will see that. And they will pass it on to their children. That's the design. Deuteronomy 6, where the greatest commandment is, he is given. The Lord gives the commandment to the fathers to teach your children when they wake up, when they walk by the way, before they go to bed at night. It's the father's responsibility to teach their children the truths of the word of God, not the schools. And really, not even the churches. It goes to the father. It's interesting that when you see, let's see, well, we have volition, marriage, family, nation, where does church fit in there? It came along later, did it not? The basic principles, you don't violate the basic principles just because there is a church now. It is means of assembly. Little different, but similar to what the synagogue did for thousands of years beforehand. Now we're a little different because we are priests to God. And he says, live like it. Live your so great salvation. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for your blessings, for your test. Thank you again for your amazing word. Thank you for all you've poured out upon us in the beloved. And Father, just thank you um, for teaching us that we need to have this great relationship with you first so that we might have a great relationship with the, the person you've designed for us. Father, we pray and ask that we will. In Jesus' name, amen.